So one of the questions I get often from uh, different operators and owners that I speak with all over the country um, is is uh, about buying restaurants and about uh, selling their restaurants. Is this something I know is on your mind? It's something on my mind because of that. Today I'm speaking with Robin Gagnon, who uh, works at – she's the founder and CEO of a company called WeSellRestaurants.com, uh, and she's really great. She's been doing this for a very long time, has a bunch of really great tactical advice. So if this is something you've thought about – uh, this is the episode for you. If this is something you've not thought about, Robin talks a lot about an exit strategy, understanding that you need that from day one. How might we get out of this? And and if that sounds familiar, that sounds like something you've put off, then this is definitely a conversation you want to listen to all in today's episode of Restaurant Strategy. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, my name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and sustainable business. I also work with owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. To date, we've got nearly 100 people in the program split across three different mastermind groups. It's an incredible community. It continues to grow. So listen, if you are struggling to generate consistent, predictable 20% profit month after month, then please set up a free call with someone from my team. We'll learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll learn more more about the program to see if you're a good fit for that program. If you are, we'll talk about not next steps. And if you're not, you will still come away with that call. You'll still come away from that call with some actionable advice you could put into practice right away. The best way to get started is to visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Find a time that works on our calendar. We look forward to chatting with you. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem. Because let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, can be kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft, and there's never enough cash on hand to pay out tips, so managers are constantly having to make bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet KickFin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless, tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day, makes reporting a breeze, and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And guess what? Employees love it, so it becomes a really powerful recruiting tool. Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds. No hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo, and yes, you will find that link in the show notes. Now, 
My guest on today's show is Robin Gagnon. She is the CEO and founder of a company called WeSellRestaurants.com. There's a lot we're going to talk about, uh, how you uh, decide about whether to buy an existing restaurant or go find a space, uh, how you should uh, go into due diligence and the negotiation process, and some of the pitfalls uh, of going through uh, the selling and buying um, uh, buying process. She's a very smart, passionate woman. I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Before we get into all that, let welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. My pleasure. You and I connected. I don't know if you remember this. We connected a while back on Clubhouse. Are you still uh, active on Clubhouse? I am, believe it or not. So many years later, I am still doing uh, women in franchising on Clubhouse. Um, I was doing it once a week until about two months ago, and I just ran out of bandwidth to keep that going. So now I'm once a month, uh, the last Wednesday of the month at noon, uh, Women in Franchising on Clubhouse. I love that. We'll make sure to include that link. If anybody um, doesn't know, Clubhouse is sort of the, the – it's an audio platform. It's sort of like um, party line, right? Like everybody gets in a room together and there's a moderator, there's a host. Um, you bring people up on stage. Uh, it's somewhere between talk radio and a podcast. And the cool thing is it's momentary. It has to happen right there. Um, that's the good part and the bad part. I found that um, uh, for me, I sort of lost bandwidth and I had to prioritize um, other things that I was doing because I'm I, like you. Um, I was doing Clubhouse a lot. I want to say a year ago, two years ago, something like that. Um, I would host, uh, I'd say two or three rooms a week, um, and then I'd pop into other friends' rooms, other colleagues, and all that, and it was cool. But ultimately, I just sort of, um, I didn't like that. Once the conversations happened, they just disappeared. Um, that that's why I have a podcast because we do two episodes a week here. Uh, it's been running for four and a half years, and people can discover this and get value out of it um, over, over, and uh, over and over and over. However, the cool part about Clubhouse, and I've made really good friends and, and contacts uh, via Clubhouse. The cool part is that you get to connect with other people in your industry from uh, not just your market, but all over, not just this country, but all over the world. So, uh, Robin and I eventually uh, originally connected there, and I'm uh, glad we could finally make this happen to get you on the show. Absolutely. That's great. And I have met a lot of uh, amazing people in the restaurant industry. It's actually Clubhouse kind of came out when COVID was gripping the country and it was a new way. And so I was hearing like what's going on in California, what's going on in the Midwest. It was a great way to really connect and understand how people were being affected. Um, and now you actually can record your yes. clubhouse. Yes. And uh, so it's on my to-do list to go back and take all those recordings and just flip them into a podcast so they have yeah. more longevity. Yeah, it, it's content. And you're right. And since I sort of backed away from it, one of the features, I'm sure I was not the only one who felt that way, but one of the features that came on was this ability uh, to record and to cut snippets and share those things, which ultimately I think are a very good um, productive tool there. Give some context here, because as we get into this conversation, I sort of teased up what we're going to talk about or what I'd like to talk about. And I got a series of questions here for you. Um, give some context. Talk about what it is you do and talk about how uh, you got involved in not only restaurants, but this particular aspect of the industry. 
So it's really intriguing. Um, I came from a Fortune 100 background. My husband was in Big Five Accounting, and he actually had a good friend at a point when Big Five Accounting was kind of getting rid of folks who were um, more on the business generation side of things, who said to him, you know, Atlanta needs a good restaurant broker. And I was like, I don't even know what a restaurant broker is. Tell me about that. And the the discussion morphed into how people need someone to really guide them down that path of, you know, what is. We, we talk about the four-letter words in the restaurant industry, uh, the F word, which is fail, right? But it happens, and we know that it happens. And when those things happen, that can be someone else's opportunity. We also talk about exit, which so many independent operators don't really focus on. And we that. really just... Yeah, and we, and we really decided, listen, everybody needs that opportunity to take that amazing thing that they have built, that generational uh, piece of themselves, and figure out a way that we transfer that to someone else in the industry or in, their, in the next generation of their life and help guide that process. And so from, you know, the basement of our house to 21 years later, we work in 45 states for all over the country and we help people really get through those tough times and tough decisions about, is it time for me to exit now? And whose hands do I really put my business in? Yep. So did you have a passion for restaurants before this or did you just see an opportunity? And there is no wrong answer here because I think, <laughs> Because um, I think there is opportunities, but but like how was it literally just tell me what that is? Like I come from a different background. What's a restaurant broker? Tell me what that is. And you saw an opportunity to do this. Talk, talk to me about that. So I, I think it's a little bit of both. Eric and I are both passionate about the restaurant business. And he had formerly been in banking and uh, banking and then big five accounting. And in that realm, he was doing a lot of financial work around restaurants, a lot of due diligence, and um, seeing big, big M&A level type transactions happening. I was in marketing, so I saw it as an opportunity. And then between the two of us, you know, we love, we're foodies all the way. We love food. We love dining experiences. Mm -hmm. And it became the perfect complement to who we are as people and what we could be as a brand. Yeah, it's funny because I asked that question and, and I'm pretty outspoken uh, on this show and, and certainly with the audience, they'll recognize this, but um, like many, I think many of us in the industry took either the back door or the side door to get into the industry, especially in this country. It isn't an industry that you aspire to be. I mean, maybe some little kid wants to be a chef when they grow up without knowing the sort of the realities of uh, the long hours, the, the, the holidays, the weekends, the, all of that. But in the beginning, when I was uh, when I get into the industry, I, I hated this industry. For me, it was because I started as an out of work actor. <laughs> what do you do? I was an out of work actor working in restaurants. So for me, for, for a couple of years there, restaurants were really just a signal of my failure, right? That, that I wasn't doing what I set out to do. And every time I would go and work and then come back, you know, because in between gigs, you go and you work at restaurants, or at least that's what I did. And so that time spent in restaurants was really um, a reminder of the fact that I wasn't doing what I intended to do or what I set out to do or what I felt like I should be doing. And it took a while for me to embrace the industry um, and realize that there was a lot about it that actually did feed my creativity, that did allow me um, to do so much of what I wanted to do. But the first, I'll say, 
three years or so while I was doing it, I, I didn't love it. And until I clicked into this other stuff, and now it's the thing that provides my family. It's the thing I'm very passionate about. And 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 I love food and I love wine and I love to travel and to explore more food and more wine. And uh, my passion is helping, you know, uh, restaurant owners, operators turn their restaurants around. So it's interesting. We're having this conversation. You're talking about um, these four letter words fail. You're talking about exit. Um, and, and I and I believe in that word exit. That's why I responded so um, so quickly. I believe I, I believe you need an exit strategy. It doesn't have to emerge right away. But as you get your restaurant up and running and then it gets going and it sort of um, becomes more routine, that is the time to think about like, great, how long do I have? How long do I want to do this? What what might the next thing look like? What might the end of the road look like? So I love that you brought that up because it is something that we don't talk about enough. And we watch so many people sort of go long beyond when they should to try to keep something running or alive because it's the only thing they know or it's because they feel it's failure if they uh, somehow let it let it go. So I, I love that you brought that up. Talk to me about the other four letter words. <laughs> sell, right? Yeah. Okay. How do you sell? Um, that's the other four letter word. Um, and some people think that that's a dirty word, like, right? Like, the people who are in this industry, and I think you you really nailed it. People do come from the side. They come around. It's generally not where they intend to be in life. And they typically have a passion. They develop a passion for the business. They develop this love for food. They have a generous heart, right? Like to me, and I always go back to that, the most basic function in the world is that an original way in which we gathered as a people is breaking bread and having wine together, right? That's who we are as a society. And so you get at the crux of that, you have these operators, they are welcoming people into what feels like their own home and they are providing an experience for them. Think about the events that happen in a restaurant. I know I have operators that say, I don't know if I can turn loose because the, the girl who manages my front of house right now, I remember her coming in for um, you know, after vacation Bible school for an event, and then her fiance, uh, her 16th birthday, her family was all here, and her fiance proposed here, and now you know, she. Th so they see all the events of our lives, and so they almost feel as though are they doing something wrong to put it out there and sell it, and then do they have the skills to understand what that means? Like, what is the business really worth? And, and unfortunately, our tax code doesn't make it easy for independent <laughs> no, <it does> not. <laughs> right? What you are, what, what you're trying to do for the tax man is avoid putting every bit of income on the books. And what you're trying to do when you're trying to sell it, Chip, is you're trying to realize every bit of income on yep. the books. So somebody in the middle has to go through and really analyze those numbers. And, and we do what's called a recast. We recast the actual owner benefit because there yeah. are benefits you derive from owning that business. But somebody has to do that in a very methodical and a black and white way so that yep. they can 
person show that to a buyer. So, and generally, it can't be the person who's got their heart engaged in the business. It has yeah. to be someone separate. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that because uh, – and, and I deal with this a lot. I work with a lot of operators who have a business that's thriving in as far as there's a lot of top-line revenue. It's been around for a while. they got longevity. Obviously, it means um, that people love them. The community embraces them. They, they continue to come back. They're generating a million, two, three, five million dollars a year. But they struggle with dropping it to the bottom line. And when we really try to sort out a P&L, um, at least when I, when I joined it, we talk about that owner's discretionary benefit, that thing you're talking about. Like, what are all the benefits that you derive from this business? Because that can be dumped to the bottom line when we talk about net operating income. Like, what did the business provide you with? I'm ultimately, as a restaurant coach, when I work with, uh, with the owners that I work with, I'm interested in maximizing their take at the end, whether they take those benefits somewhere on a line item in the middle of the P&L or at the bottom where it says net income doesn't matter to me because they're still they're still generating a benefit. But talk about that. So maybe this is a I don't know if it's the best place to start, but it's the most logical place for me to start given this conversation. Talk to me about when somebody says, hey, I just want to sell the business. Why do people sell the business when they come to you? I assume part of this is failure. Like it's just too hard. I just don't know how to do this anymore. Or I'm getting tired of this. Or I feel like we've done it right. I'm just ready to retire. Talk to me about what else you see there. And talk to me about how that conversation then begins. So typically it happens because people have just reached a life a life cycle stage that's changing for them. Like I will have young guys that are all about, I want to buy the bar. And then they come back to me seven years later and they're now married and expecting their first kid. And they're like, I can't be home at 2 a.m. anymore. Right. I've got to get home earlier. Let me flip that into fast casual. So sometimes it's just as their lifestyle has changed, they need to flip into different kinds of concepts, okay. right? Um, many times it's just the seasons of life. You know, As soon as my children graduate, then I'm going to step away from this. Um, my wife is working too hard. You know, this is a family business. We need to step away for that reason. Sometimes it's because, listen, I have built this up. The last three years have been amazing. I'm never going to get more. So let's talk about exiting now. Because the value is high. So is exactly. there ever an instance? I, so I, I, I love all of that. Is there ever an instance that you've seen, and again, a lot of people come to you given what you do, is there ever an instance where you say, and there must be, where you say, no, you shouldn't sell, or you shouldn't sell now, or yet, or talk to me about that, because again, you've got an audience full of owners and operators, uh, many of whom I assume have considered this or talked about this in some um in some way before, but, but talk to me, are there instances that where it's just not appropriate to sell a restaurant. There is, and this is where we come back to, and it's less prevalent now because POS systems are tracking every single thing and so much of the business is through a credit card, but there are instances where people have been running their money all the way off the books, right? And I tell them, I can't help you if your business is run off the books because you already got the benefit of not paying the tax man, not paying the state sales tax, maybe paying your employees in cash and not paying the plus up and not paying the income tax associated with it. So at the end of the day, what I can get you today is very, very limited. What you're going to have to do is bring, you know, operate in the, in the clear for a couple of years so that we can sell this. Otherwise I have two things I can sell someone. 
I can sell them cash flow, a job, a living, something they are going to take over and benefit from. I'm selling them used equipment. And if there's no money on the books because you've been, you know, pulling it off and, and allocating it in different ways, allocating it is fine, but, you know, running all your costs in cash, that's not fine. And at those points, I have to say, we can't help you today yeah. to come into the clear. Okay. Any other sort of insight? And that one makes sense. Absolutely. The way you, the way you outline it. <laughs> um, <laughs> any other times where you come, where somebody comes to you and you sort of take a look over everything and say, Hey, I, I don't think, I don't think there's a way we can help you. I don't think you're going to, I mean, any well, other like clear cut always, instances? Well, we can always help someone depending okay. on the value that they want for the business. There's never an, a listing we would walk away from. We tell people there are no bad listings. There are just listings that are badly priced. But scenarios that we get into are when we have people who are very new businesses, two, three, four months old, and they have just gotten started. They had a line out the door for the first 45 to 75 days because, you know, every new restaurant in town, everybody's rushing in and then they get to the 90 day mark and they didn't reserve enough capital to operate and the crowds are gone and they're like, okay, I only have 850,000 invested. Get me back my money and I'm ready to go. Hmm. And at that point, it, I, I tell people it's like buying a new vehicle and driving it off the lot. It immediately depreciates. We can't get you back that money that you invested, that 750000 850000 What What operators must do is come into this business with enough capital reserves to be able to make it through those first 24 to 36 months so that they have something sellable. So if the business is too new, they put themselves in a very tough situation. Yeah. So then talk to me about this. And it's just, just a natural extension of what you just said. So they open up the restaurant. It runs for two years, maybe three years, that 24 to 36 months that you're talking about. And it's just, it's been limping along. Maybe it's just at a break even, couple points north, you know, in, in the black, couple points south in the red. And they say, it's just, it's just not worth it. It's not what I thought it was going to be. I, I just want to sell it. I find this a very difficult position because it's, there's, there's limited value there on paper. Why would somebody buy this business rather than just say, I'll, I'll just wait for you to fail. I'll take over the space and just do my own, or I'll just go start my own business elsewhere. What do you do in that sort of situation where they do run at the two years, the three years, but it's just sort of operating give or take at a break even where do where do you go from there well that's a great question and one thing that happened during uh kind of post pandemic and as we faced all these supply chain issues um with trying to get equipment and materials and things is that we actually had an uptick in people who would take over assets at actually better pricing than we would have expected uh five or six years ago where you would have normally had an asset sale I had one of my franchisees in um, North Carolina actually sell just the assets of a business, not cash flow positive for half a million dollars. And yeah. I was like, that is insane. But it was somebody who wanted access to the space. They didn't want to have to do the build out. So in limited instances, they can still realize a very, very good number. Um, also, it, it, it depends on where it's always location, 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 right? So in that particular instance, this was an amazing location. The only they were, way they were going to get access to it was to buy out the assets of this business. So um, they did it at a 
premium price point. So yep. there is always a buyer for assets. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, great. I love that. So let's let's take a step back now, and I want to go back to sort of the, the questions that I had framed earlier, and, and you and I connected uh, before we hit record. So we, we sort of mapped out a, a rough uh, sort of shape to this conversation, talking a lot about uh, on the seller side, but I want to go back and I want to look at um, the buy side. And I want to say, because um, you had mapped out and you said, there's two main paths you go. And I've had this conversation with potential franchisees as well, right? Do I go start my own concept or do I just buy into a franchise? Here, it's a similar kind of conversation, but I want your perspective on it. Do I go start my own restaurant or do I buy an existing business and just take that over? Talk to me about the pros and cons of each side of those, when one would be right and when the other would be right. So I'm firmly in the buy it, don't build it camp. And okay. I'll tell you what. Yeah, please. Um, and, and actually, our book, Appetite for Acquisition, I have an entire chapter on do you buy it or do you build it? And what I tend to find with build outs is, again, people are great at certain things and not great at others. I find phenomenal chefs who understand menus and pricing and everything else not to have the same set of skills that will translate into managing a construction project that will start and end on time and under budget, right? So yep. I see, so when you think about the two big things that matter to people, time and money, if you can buy an existing location, make a quick decor change, right? We're talking about changing the walls, changing yep. the tabletop now, throwing up a new menu board and signage outside, you can be in business in 30 days yep. versus dealing with the timing and the amount of money totally. and the cost and so everything me, associated with Let me pause you right there because I agree with you. And again, I come from the world of New York City, so I've spent the last 20 plus years um, in this New York City market. And for the most part, especially young uh, entrepreneurs, young budding restaurateurs, they have to look for that second gen space, right? A second generation mm -hmm. space. But I want to, so I want to split this conversation though further because it's either you find a space you do to build out that's very costly, time consuming. And like you said, if you don't have the skill set for that, I agree. Sometimes you just have to do it, but usually it's the larger companies certainly that have the capital to do it and, and sort of the, the time to invest because there are often delays. But you can say, hey, we're going to start our own brand. We're going to go find a space. We're going to build it out from scratch. The other choice is we've got our brand. We're going to look for a good second-gen space that we feel like could house this. So a restaurants that, that's maybe failed, take that over or buying the, you know, buying out the lease, things like that. And I wanted you to talk more specifically about that because you say, hey, they've already got the hood in. They've already got the, the return, the ventilation, the, all of this stuff. Um, that there's value in having that already built out. You just do some decor changes or have some people come and check and make sure the work is still solid, doesn't need any, it's gonna pass your permits and all that. But then the other piece to this is that you buy a restaurant and you just keep that restaurant. Say, hey, this restaurant is beloved or it's at least known in the area. That seems to me like a third choice. Do you see that like you're, people come and they buy it because they just want the space and the equipment, but they're eventually going to do their own thing, or they really want to buy the the restaurant and all the equity that comes with the name recognition and all of that. Talk to me, talk to me about that. And so those situations are when there is cash flow on the books. And that so like the ideal gem for someone who wants to take over a business is there's existing cash flow on the books. They're doing well. They're not 
honed in. They haven't consulted with someone like you. They don't have those food costs perfect yet. The rent is great, right? But they are just kind of tired and burned out. And so that seller, that's a true opportunity in the rough for a new buyer. And absolutely. When we have a, a restaurant that has roughly six figures in earnings on the book, that's like, those are the ones that go quickly because people want to buy into that existing cash flow and they know already the location works, the menu works. But what happens if I tweak it? What if I pare yep. down that menu? What if I improve those food costs? What if I start, um, you know, putting out specials of the day and figure out how to get that menu even better and more targeted? And what if I really control those labor costs and all of a sudden you've taken something that's generating, you know, a hundred thousand in cash flow, you take it to 150,000. So the plus up you get from that is again, it's time, money, and it's fast. You right. can do that. You can fix it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's real. That's more rare in the instances that at least you see where, because those things go so quick and they're expensive because it's cash flow positive, right? Uh, well, actually, I would say we sell probably, I would say 70% cash flow positive and about 30% uh, second generation, like what I would call asset sales, things yep. that people need to convert them to something new. Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution. Yet, it's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients you've heard me mention on this podcast, websites designed with SEO, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and, of course, the patented interactive menu technology. This new recipe brings automated phone answering and third-party online order aggregation to the table. Uh, in addition, waitlisting and more. PopMenu's phone answering technology, for example, has your ringing phones covered. With artificial intelligence, the simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a staff member from your in-person hospitality. No more missed reservations, asking for hours, or missed revenue, and that's just the beginning. You have a passion for food, PopMenu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month by visiting P-O-P menu.com slash restaurant strategy and yes that link is in the show notes got you understood good so talk to me about then continue on that conversation because I, I sort of interrupted you we talked about the pros and cons of talk to me about i, I want to just take it uh, aside from the second gen space because i totally agree with you i think if you're going to start with a uh You've you got your own concept and you want to go find your space. I think everybody listening to this should begin their search with second generation spaces, meaning a space that is already a restaurant that could be just uh, converted to be your restaurant. That goes without saying. But talk to me about when somebody's on the fence and say, well, I have this idea. I want to open this kind of place. I'm going to go. I can either go make mine or go find an existing business to just take over and continue running like like you said 70 percent what do you usually tell those people whether it's to you know start with brand new ip brand new concept all of that or to go find an existing thing talk to me about how you think about that 
I think it really depends on the financial situation of the buyer, right? So depending on where they are. So I get a lot, uh, you know, Friday afternoon, our phone rings like crazy. I get all the corporate refugees. Um, I call them corporate refugees, restaurant wannabes. They're like, I got to get out of this cube. How do I get into the restaurant business? If that's a guy who has been getting this corporate paycheck for a year over year over year, he's got a family to support. Go for the sure thing. Okay. If they are a restaurateur, if they have been in this business cutting their teeth, they started chopping the vegetables and doing the dishes, you know, seven years ago, and they've been waiting to do that investment, then I would say follow your passion, right? But I err more on the conservative side, and it really depends. Like, we don't ever start talking to somebody about opportunities until we start talking to them, saying, tell me about yourself. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life. What are you looking for? Because you don't want to put somebody in a situation where they're not going to be successful. Yeah, great. I love that. So then talk to me. This leads naturally into the next uh, stage. And the two instances you just laid out, um, right? Somebody, a corporate refugee, restaurant wannabe. I, lo I love that. Um, who just wants that, you know, is is sort of enamored with the industry, feels like they could do it, they want to do it. Obviously, we know there's a whole set of skills and uh, there's a there's a, a learning curve to doing that. Anybody who's spent any uh, serious amount of time um, in the industry knows that that just doesn't happen overnight. Um, it can be learned for sure. That's the beauty of our industry. There's such a low barrier of entry. Uh, we'll teach you anything and, and you can pick it up. But there is a learning curve. And then on the other side, I mean, you sort of talked about somebody who's um, – Maybe they're a restaurateur, they got numerous concepts, and so they, they do know what they're doing. But there are plenty of people who are uh, chefs, who were a general manager, an assistant general manager, maitre d', somebody who says, I've been doing this forever, but I want my own place. Talk to me about when you start that process, um, when they go set out looking for locations, when they start doing this. Talk to me about how those conversations had uh, are had. Talk to me about some of the advice you give them. Some of the, I mean, you talked about the sort of the pitfalls to avoid. I think this is all part of that same conversation. Um, talk, talk to me about that. So, it, and the thing is this, Chip, I've been doing this now for 21 years. And the thing I, I absolutely cannot predict is someone's success. We have... We have people who have come out of the healthcare industry in corporate America that have gone into the restaurant business that I wouldn't have bet, you know, two weeks salary on who are 20 years later, you know, slamming it in this business and say, get me out. And I will tell you a couple of people that I have worked with who were GMs for someone else who I thought had ex amazing resumes and were ready, were just going to be a slam dunk. When they went into business for themselves, they didn't have everything that they needed yeah. in order to be successful. Yep. Um, so there's no way to predict. So it's it's a matter of really kind of understanding where are they in their life? Yep. Wh what is their financial situation? Um, you know, what are they going to be able to commit to this? Are they going to really, are they all in? And I think that's really what it is with everything in life, right? Like, is this something you sort of kind of want to do and you're looking around or are you really all in to the opportunity yeah. and trying to gauge that and then give them options and let them try to decide? So then let's say um, let's leave aside that sort of established restaurant for just a second. 
So, hey, there's a, there's a restaurant available for sale, cash flow positive. Uh, you just, you'll buy the business. You'll just take it over. Keep running the business as it was. You'll make tweaks and changes, and you'll make improvements and all of that. I want to set that aside. Talk to me about finding a space. So you say, no, we really want to start. I have a really great concept. I've got ideas. Talk to me about that process then. And, and we'll go back to the other one in just a, a few minutes. But talk to me about that. And you said, what are the things to look for finding that right space? What are some of the pitfalls to avoid? Walk me through how you think about that. So the first, the first thing I ask someone is how many square feet do you need? Because almost without fail, everyone wants to overspace their business. And then I kind of dig into that a little bit and understand, okay, what's your, tell me about your price points, tell me any covers you're going to do for lunch and for dinner. And then if you come back to me and say, I still need 4,000 square feet and I'm gonna do $4 million in my first year, I'm gonna have some really hard conversations with you about how rare that is and yeah. how many people you would have to put through the door, what that throughput looks like. So I think that the number one thing is, I, I have this, this document I've created called a leasing assessment tool where I ask you to sit down, give me your menu, uh, give me your hours of operations, tell me what your average price is going to be, Tell me what you anticipate your best rental rate to be. And really, uh, we just really kind of dive deep into what that looks like. And if they have a, a space, if they are asking me to go and find them 5,000 square feet, I mean, realistically, there isn't anything except a full service concept that needs 5,000 square feet left in America today. There just isn't, right? I'm, I'm always trying to push you down. The, the number one yeah, thing you can now never- Especially 35%, 40% of our- revenue especially from a quick service or fast casual is all coming from takeout and delivery yeah exactly the the model has changed so somebody tells me they want too much space and then how are they going to allocate it you know sometimes folks come in they have their chef's hat on and they want this massive kitchen and no space to service people okay so again you're it's not just how big is the space but how is what's it going to you know, how is it going to be laid out front of house versus the back of the house? So there's some conversations about that. And then wh what is their their understanding of the area? You know, what are they serving? What's their understanding of the area where they want to operate? And to your point, we've got so much of this business is going out the door through takeout and delivery. Location has become less important. Size has become less important. So many things are driving it. But the number one thing you can you can never overcome, it's living with you for 10 years. Once you start the business, you can never overcome that occupancy expense. You just that you're going to work for yourself. or You're going to work for the landlord. So yeah. let's take a step back and take that space size down a little bit. Take the um, take everything down. Let's really look at it in realistic uh, in a realistic manner before you sign up for 10 years, and especially under some form of a personal guarantee, we're the only person who's gonna get rich is the landlord. Yep, yep, I totally, uh, I could not agree more. Um, I have specific feelings about this, so I'm gonna ask you, because I wanna know how you think about this. Do you come up with a concept and then go try and find a space for the concept, or you find a space and then come up with a, uh, create a concept to fit the space? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that the most of the people that I deal with are doing the former. They have a concept and then they're looking for space. And to me, that's a little bit easier um, because you you can find a space and fall in love with it. Who knows if you're going to get to terms with the landlord? 
You know, I have another chapter in my book. The landlord is not your friend. Yeah. Like, believe nothing <laughs> to tell you. Yeah. And uh, make sure you have somebody looking at that lease in a, in a million different ways. But that, you know, don't fall in love with a space. Make sure you have a viable concept. There's always more spaces out there. Yep. And you don't want to get yourself pivoted and like laser focused on this one thing. And um, then have the space fall apart. Well, then you're, you don't have a concept any longer. Yep. Put multiple concepts together. Figure out how your space will work in full service and quick casual. And what if half the business was delivery? And by the way, should you do it? Interesting fact. Um, I just read uh, Yelp does like a, um, a you know quarterly state of the restaurant business, and actually the number one growth in new restaurants that they reported last quarter was in pop up kitchens, uh, pop up concepts. And why is that? Why not? Why not do a pop up for a while and see how people respond 100%, 100%. to your menu? To so you don't have to go all in. And if you get in love with a with a space first, and I have no idea what your position is on this, but for me, figure out your concept first, test it in the marketplace, see how people respond, and then go find the space. Don't yeah. fall in love with the space. It's so funny. The longer I do this, the more I realize that the latter is, I think, the way to go. Uh, that's and that's um, having gone through not I've done nine openings in New York City, um, nine high profile uh, profile openings. And I've worked with, I don't know, over 250 different operators, you know, through the, the various coaching programs that I run. And there's two ways to do it. And, and it makes sense. And like you said, I think most people in our industry say, I get this really great concept for my whatever. And then they go try and find the space. Um, and then they're trying to fit it. And what I find is the other way is is better because I find that the people that I work with, the chefs, the restaurateurs, the, that they're so smart and creative. There is no shortage of ideas. And when they come in, they say, I have this really great concept and I just need to find the right spot for that. That they look and they put blinders on and they see on their journey to find the perfect space for the concept they have. They look at 15 places and there might've been six of them that would have been great, very, um, uh, uh, very great terms, great location, and all of that. And if they had stopped and said, huh, but what could go in here? Could anything go in here? Do I park that other idea? And this, man, I can't beat this location. I'm never going to get these terms again. I'm Look at the, it's got, what could I do here that I find they miss out mm -hmm. on a lot of really great opportunities. So maybe it's a, maybe it's a little bit of both that you can have a concept and go looking for places, but you need to keep yourself open enough that when you come across a great space, you have to be able to say, whoa, wait a minute. This space, this opportunity is falling in my lap. What could I do? Because again, the people that I know and work with, and I've been doing this long enough to know these are some of the most intelligent, creative, passionate people I've ever met. And that given the right terms, the right opportunity to succeed, they can succeed a, mil a million different ways. And so, I, and I find that too many people skip over something really great on their version, uh, on their way to the version of great that they had in their mind. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And tunnel vision, you just cannot have tunnel vision. Yep. It, 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 just think about it. You wouldn't have it as a chef in creating a dish. You're going to get creative and pull something in. If you don't have one ingredient, you're going to throw a different protein in. You're going to try things. Why not do it in the business before 100%. you commit all that? And, and, and P.S. 
space. 100%. And P.S., it's that same muscle that helps you succeed. Here's a perfect example. The last 14 months with the inflation we've seen. That create uh, that uh, that creative muscle allows you to take lemons and make lemonade. Literally say, like, oh, my God, eggs doubled in price. Two and a half, three times what they were. You got to get creative. Like, I don't know, when, when chicken wings went up, when, when steak went up, right? Like, okay, is there another cut I can use? Can I redo this? Like, do I have to have a filet mignon on my menu? Because uh, what I'm going to have to buy it for and what I'm going to have to then turn around and charge for it no longer makes sense. So how can I get creative? So rather than having tunnel vision saying, well, we're the kind of restaurant that needs a filet mignon on the menu. Okay. Filet mignon's going to cost. I mean, <laughs> some of the prices this past year were insane. You know, thirty, forty dollars a pound for some of these, fifty dollars a pound for just like a just a cut of you know black Angus, and you're gonna have to sell that fillet, right? An eight ounce fillet for sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety dollars. Like it just at a certain point just didn't make sense. So in any event, that tunnel vision, and I find we're better than that. Like like we can do better, and and I think a lot of the reasons why we to use your four letter word, uh, a lot of the reasons why I think we fail is because we fail at doing this thing. And we miss all the other uh, opportunities, um, other opportunities out there. I feel this sort of bring this now a little full circle. I feel this way about uh, the theater industry, about the arts, is that where I got my start is that this is what an actor does. An actor prepares what they do and they go and they ask for, for permission every single day. They, they audition. They ask for um, they ask for the right to do what they've been trained to do. And man, if anybody just stepped outside and said, that's weird. All I do is walk around with my hand out all day. But like, I'm good at what I do. Maybe there's a different way to do what I do or a better way to. And I, I think I think people in the creative fields would um, would be better. I certainly sort of discovered that on my path. But yeah, I mean, just understanding the creativity that exists there. Absolutely. And is weren't chicken wings created out of thrown away parts, right? Like That's exactly how many right. great things do we have because somebody said, Oh, let's do something with that. Listen, sausage, pork roll, scrapple, wings. I mean, like all of the Caesar salad. We can go all the way through because somebody said, Oh man, what am I gonna do with this stuff? I gotta make a salad, <laughs> right? Like I gotta make like and you know, they took they turned uh, lemons into lemonade. Our industry is so good at doing that, but we have to, you have to give yourself permission to see it and you have to have the confidence to say, yeah, whatever's in that. Uh, and they're, they're cooking competitions now, right? It's like that Iron mm -hmm. Chef thing. You got to make a whole meal with this one ingredient. How do you make four courses or three courses based on this one ingredient? I don't know, but I know I'm trained enough and I've got enough experience and I, and I trust my taste. I mean, my abilities to be able to do it. Right. So in sort of a, a game show competition we yeah, oh. there's a show where they're buying whatever's in someone else's grocery bags, <laughs> sight unseen, and yep. making a meal out of it. Yep, yep, Absolutely. it's 100%. So, um, I, so that's my feeling on it. I find that if you say, hey, and this goes back to the way I think about marketing, right? Two ways to market a product, right? They always say there's two ways to do marketing. You create a product, and then you go try to find customers for that product. Right. Which is hard enough to do, especially in our industry, when we can't, quote unquote, go out, when we just have a place, we open the doors and we wait for people to come to us. So you create a product and go find customers, which is the way most of us do it. Or the other, which is the way most successful businesses do. You look at a market, you see who has a need and you create a product to fill that need. By far, our industry does the former and the best businesses in the world 
have one thing in common is that they all do the latter. They look at a market, meaning a group of people, uh, a, a demographic, uh, a region, and they say, what do these people need? What do they need that I'm uniquely qualified to provide? And then they go do that. And I think our industry just doesn't do that enough. So that's another way, I guess, of of working through that same problem. Is that, do we come up with a concept and go for, try and find a space? I don't know. You might find the perfect space, but nobody in that market, nobody in that neighborhood, in that area really cares about the thing that you want to do. You got your concept. You or found a, a perfect restaurant space. And, and the busiest Thai restaurants across the street. Like you have to leave yourself open. A hundred percent. So I, I just... But you could find that perfect space. You say, hey, man, they got this Thai restaurant. They got this, this. But you know what they don't have here is fill in the blank. And am I good enough, smart enough, curious enough? Can I can I go and create that thing? Because that other thing I think would kill it. The Thai, maybe not so much because the best Thai in the city is right across the street. I'm not going to dethrone them. But is there something else I can do? And I, and I got to believe every single time that there is an opportunity, that if you find the right space, with uh, with sort of the, the the right terms, you can come up with something that can be successful. I, I just we just don't put ourselves in that position to succeed enough. Great, great thoughts. Okay. I can tell your passion for the industry just flows out in oh. these conversations. It's and you know what? Here's the thing: is that we talk about these razor thin profit margins. I mean, you talk about a cash flow positive in the six figures. I mean, like I, I long for I long for a place where we're not tethered to these margins, where where a couple can open a restaurant, generate a million and a half in revenue and enjoy two, two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars a year, which is, I think, a really good living in most. Uh, I mean, an unbelievable living in most of this country. Um, but to open a place that makes a million dollars a year and generates maybe 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars in in positive net operating income, like that's just cutting too close to the bone for me to make single digit profit margins. So that, that's where I come from. That's, that's my passion point. I've been doing this long enough. And it's like, everybody I work with is good enough has is providing something great for the community, providing jobs, feeding people is a meeting point, right? A place where people come to celebrate, break bread and all that. And at the end of the day, landlord gets paid, the vendors get paid, payroll gets met, linens, get, you know, linen guy gets paid, everybody gets paid before the owners. And, and that's got to change. Um, because let me just tell you how the rest of the world works. The rest of the world builds their numbers and says, well, we want to see a 25% return on this. And so let's build the business appropriately. They, they think of the return as a line item. They wouldn't dream of not paying the rent. They wouldn't dream of not paying the electric bill. They wouldn't dream of not paying themselves. And so I just want us to be in a place where we're better about paying ourselves. It's, it's for me, it all comes down to profitability. I want people... That's funny. I always talk to people in my uh, in my program, people who consider coming into my program. I say it doesn't matter what you want. Do you want to expand your business, franchise your business, sell your business, just step away from your business and have somebody else run it while you live on a beach? All of those things I can support. The answer to all of that is profitability. So and like you said earlier, right, let's show positive cash flow for two to three years. Let's put yourself in the position so you can get the most value for it. You've already been running this place for 17 years. Let's put in another, another year or two. Let's make it look really good on paper because we know it's already good. Um, otherwise, food's great. Space is great. Location's great. All of that. Let's just let's just get that last little bit so you can maximize maximize your return for all the equity you've already put in. That's that's what I care about. That's what really gets me going. That's phenomenal. Life's too short. Life's too short to not um, 
to not reap the benefits of the things, uh, of the hard work you do. This is true for you, right? Talk about Big Five Accounting. Let me just tell you, Big Five Accounting wouldn't exist, right? None of those guys, E&Y, all that, they wouldn't exist if they weren't making money. But they make money so that they exist. You wouldn't do what you do if you weren't making money doing it. But you're able to make a living, provide for your family, and and, and so you do it. And, I, and there's just so many restaurant owners out there who don't, who don't think in those terms. And so I'm, that's what I'm that's what I'm really passionate about because we all we all enjoy the restaurants uh, in one way or another. They um, they provide us jobs in college. They you know give our kids uh, jobs. They uh, you know they offer us a really great way of life, uh, promotions, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. We just need to get taken care of. Tell me. Well, oh no, go ahead. Yes. No, I was just going to say that creativity that you referenced. I, I truly don't believe there is another industry in America that was throttled as hard as the restaurant business was during the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. The, the, we rose to that occasion. Everybody in this industry rose to that occasion. And I know that word resiliency is so overused and so overdone nope, as it relates. I don't think it is. I think it's a great word. But I mean to tell you, restaurants stood toe to toe with the worst humanity had to offer, and 100%. they came out on the other side swinging. So I am, and I am so tired. It's a great word, and, and it's it's a huge compliment to pay to uh, the owners and operators listening to this call, to the people you work, people I work with, to our industry as a whole. We are resilient, and God, I'm just tired of talking about our resiliency. It's the it's one of the the best compliments you can pay our industry. And man, why don't we talk about thriving? It's like there's this there's the, it's like you know profit's a dirty word. That making money's a dirty word. It's okay to make money, right? A rising tide lifts all ships. It's it's okay, and I think um, I think enough of the of the razor thin profit margins. Enough of like, oh, it's so expensive. Yeah, it is expensive to go out. But you know what? Mm -hmm. Somebody prepped it, cooked it, served it, cleared it, cleaned up the dining room after you, and P.S. put in the 10, 15, 20, 40 years beforehand to come up with a recipe and a concept that you were going to love. You're not paying people for the food. We're paying, you know, we're talking about margins. Well, we got to hit a 30% food cost. Screw that. How about we got to pay somebody for the 30 years they've already put into this industry to be able to have the, the insights, the experience to say, I know what people want. I know how to serve people. I know how to create a really comfortable place, a place they're going to love to come to, a place where they're going to want to celebrate, or you fill in the blank. So enough of this, like, Oh, I don't know. People will pay that. People will pay what they need to pay. You have to make it. You have to make it worth it. Um, you have to make it worth it. Uh, th that value. You have to make it valuable to them, worth the price that they're going to pay. But I, I'm just sort of tired of hearing. Right. And the first thing they had, the the COVID, right when COVID happened, right? What happened? The restaurants were the first at the front lines, feeding the frontline workers. Right. The firefighters, the police, all the healthcare workers, all that. Right. Every time your your kids, you got to you need a um, you know a gift card. For your uh, for your kids, uh, you know PTA for the silent auction or whatever. You go to the restaurant down the street. Hey, would you donate a hundred dollar gift card? Two hundred dollars. It's always with the handout, right? Which mm -hmm. is great. But at a certain point, collectively, culturally, we need to think differently about ourselves. We need to uh, you know value ourselves higher. And ultimately, I think uh, culturally, um, the country needs to think about uh, this because because 
if we don't treat the industry right, meaning we as a country, we, you know, when we talk about sort of, uh, you know, government oversight and tax, uh, tax law and all that, if we don't do it right, it's not going to be restaurants, right? We're going to go back to the way it was 50 years ago, and it's one-tenth of the restaurants that exist right now, and it's not going to be nearly as interesting. It's going to be harder for people to make a living for themselves, and it's going to be harder to go get a great meal on a Saturday night for sure. That's my soapbox. I'm going to get off, and I want to get back on track. <laughs> I want to talk about navigating the restaurant buying process because you talked about this, right? Three uh, sort of phases, right? Due diligence, negotiation, and eventually uh, closing that deal. So talk to me, uh, talk to me about uh, from your perspective, talk to me about how you think about these uh, three areas. Okay, so the first part is this. It's very easy for a buyer and a seller, a buyer to say, I want to buy that. But the, the work, the heavy lifting, the effort comes then in those next stages, right? getting them through the due diligence phase, getting them to the closing table. So finding a buyer, and I often tell sellers that, that that's easy. That There are buyers out there that want to be in this industry. Our buyer growth last month was close to 40%. Like people are passionate about still getting into this business. In fact, I have sellers that are like, oh, I don't know if it's a good time to sell. You know, things are this or that. Kind of like what you were saying, like they don't give themselves credit for what they've already achieved in this industry, but people want in. I will, I'm here to tell you that because they are burning up our, our website and, and uh, online ads to get in. But then doing that heavy lifting then to get through the due diligence period. And this is where I think it's tough for a lot of sellers where they, you ask them, you know, how many ounces of protein they have in their, you know, best selling item on the menu and they can tell you in a second. But if you say, hey, I need you to print XYZ report from your POS system or I need you to get your tax filings for this many years, it's like, oh no, what are they going to find? And so I think that due diligence process has to be more about, listen, it's not, we're not looking to get you. There's no, okay, now we're going to drive the price down or any of that. It's just part of the process. Take that fear out and just know that's part of the process. And then one thing that we do is we really hold people's hands. Like the minute that we have a deal that's accepted, we have the buyer and the seller on the phone every single week. We're doing a conference call. We're getting those things answered. But what you don't want to do is have things fester or have somebody start sending something on email and they don't understand. Like, oh, why is he asking that? You know, it's just a simple thing. Oh, how many hours do you work? Well, here's what I do. But then my wife's also in there like, it's just people having a conversation. So I think there's a lot of fear. So maybe I'll throw that four-letter word in there too. There's a lot of fear around the process of due diligence and getting through that so that people can actually progress to the closing table. So I think those are some thoughts I'd want to throw out there. Yeah, great. I love that. I mean, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just the numbers don't lie. It's black and white, and they're going to they're gonna see what, what you do and... I, I, that's just part of the process. Talk to me about the negotiating side. Where, where, what are some, and you said sort of guide people through, hold their hands during this process. Talk to me about when you're going back to negotiate the sale of, uh, or the purchase of a business or the sale of a business. Talk to me about some of the hand holding or some of the, the tips, the advice, the, the things that you've learned, um, in your years doing this. So I, I tell people everyone needs to feel a little win, right? It can't be one-sided. It can't be the buyer gets everything or the seller gets everything. So sometimes what I'll offer up to the seller is to say, hey, 
why don't you offer a couple of extra weeks of training? What does that do? That helps the buyer overcome their fear, but there's no real hard costs associated with that, right? Because you're doing the training, you want the business to be successful. So he's trying to hit you on the price instead of letting him hit you for that twenty or $30,000, say, you know what? And this is where people don't value themselves again enough in this industry, say, you know what? We need to stick at our at our, at that price we've agreed to, but here's what the seller's willing to do. He will jump in and work with you and make sure that you're confident in these recipes and in the function of the business for an extra two weeks. That's really an unmatched benefit. So I like that. trying yeah. to understand yeah. So everybody gets something. And you do have buyers. Um, it's rare. We don't really put things into contract where buyers then get through due diligence and then start hammering down because we try to set them up ahead of time. But but sometimes you'll have buyers that just are not working with the best of intentions. And at that point, um, I think that whoever's in the middle of that negotiation needs to make sure they're working on the part of both parties. And it's okay to say no. No is a negotiating word. You can say no we're not going to accept that price reduction. No, we're not going to do that thing. And that's okay because sometimes they just need to hear no to to back them up a little bit. They still want the business. They're still in love with it. They they know that that's the, the step forward for them. Um, but no doesn't have to be a dirty word either. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's understanding uh, your limits, the, the boundaries and the guardrails, which is another thing that I feel like restaurant owners um, don't do enough of. And so on the sell side and the buy side, I think it's a good lesson for getting into or out of this business. It goes back to, and this is sort of want to tie this up here. And I want to go back to what you talked about at the beginning was this, this exit strategy, um, right? Every gambler needs an exit strategy. What's the number at which I can walk away where I say, great, I have succeeded. And you know, where's the point where I'm not going to go any further. I think an exit strategy is really smart to understand because I think it's something we don't do enough. We talk about our seasons of life and all that and say, this works for me now, but there's going to come a point when this won't work for me anymore. That was me on my feet. I, I worked in restaurants for uh, 17 years, something like that, before I started transitioning entirely to consulting and, and coaching. For me, it was my ankles, my knees, and my hips. They just couldn't, they, I just, it was really bothering me to be on my feet all that time. And I know there's people who work twice as long as I have um, in the industry and all the power to them. I knew enough about myself to know that this is not gonna be good if I continue to do this and I need to find a way to function in this industry in a different way. And it had to do with my family and my priorities with being, you know, when my, when my wife was pregnant, you know, being around once our son was born. Um, but I feel like people don't talk enough about that. Talk to me a little bit more about exit strategy and how, how you sort of coach um, how, how you sort of coach people as you work with them and, and how just as you've known people over the last 21 years having done this? Well, I think the, the first thing is that you should start thinking about your exit strategy the day you go into business, right? Like what is ultimately you, where you're going? And we're kind of at this situation uh, in just in the life cycle of Americans right now, we have all these baby boomers who are retiring, who are at that age where they're not going to be ready to go on. But guess what? They gave birth to a lot of millennials who are very highly educated and have taken the, the income and the earnings from this business. They've invested them in their children. They've given them these great educations. 
And guess what? They've gone on to be lawyers and doctors and all these other things. So the, the kind of strategy that we thought we always had for years and years, oh, Sally will go into the business, my daughter, or John will go into the business, my son, that's not out there anymore. So yeah. you just can't rely on friends and family buying the business. So um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would look at it kind of in stages of your life, really, like every five years and every decade, we kind of our health adjusts, our thinking adjusts, how much money we are comfortable having in the banking, in the bank adjusts. So I would say that everybody in the business should have this you know, five to 10 year view of where they're going and, and where they're going to be out, uh, when they're going to be out. And that should include things like making sure that your lease has option years so that we can transfer it to someone else, particularly if you have a really good lease. Yeah. Um, it should include things like, um, you know, do you document your processes? Do you document your recipes? You know, make it easy for someone else to come in. You need to make an assumption that someone outside the business is going to come in, take over and be you. How does that happen? And it doesn't happen overnight. And you can't say, hey, Robin, sell my business and then tomorrow be ready to go. So you have to, you know, begin planning very early in the process. And and now it's so easy. Like people are talking to you all about artificial intelligence and how you use artificial intelligence. To me, the, the way people in the restaurant industry need to be using artificial intelligence is to document the processes. And, you know, you're not a franchise when you're an independent, but do you have the same sort of uh, business practices and processes and, and operations manuals and everything that you need for somebody else to come in and take over? And the saddest story. Yeah. Ultimately, that's where you want to be able to say, this is what we do. This is how we're successful, meaning here, here are the processes, here's the, the systems that, that they can replicate without you. Yeah. What were you going to say, the saddest? It, well, the saddest thing you see is when I get a, 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 someone coming to me and saying, we didn't expect it. And, you know, my husband's in the hospital or my wife's in the hospital or, you know, we've only got two or three months because of a health issue or, God forbid, they've already passed and no one else knows how to do anything. You yep. just do not want to put your heirs in that situation. And you don't want to put your your life's work in that situation. So that's why plan ahead. Just sit down with someone and say, what can I get today? What could I get if I clean this up in two years? Yep. And be ready for those tough conversations. What do you have? What What does your repertoire look like in terms of your um your menus being committed to paper what does your staffing look like how many years have they been there is there anyone on your team look at it for a succession um yep. succession plan within your team members there that. might be a general manager there that you love and has been with you for eight nine ten years they don't have the money to go to the bank can you be their bank like just let's get creative and figure something out and yep. begin transitioning them sooner Yep, I, th I think some of the best uh, deals I've seen over the last couple of years are where I've worked. I'm working with somebody who bought out the business from the uh, the predecessor, just like you, like you said. Oh, it's a husband and wife, and they thought their kids were going to go into it, but their kids now a lawyer living, you know, three thousand miles away, and they don't want to work in in the deli. They don't want to work in the the sushi shop, whatever it is, and um, 
then these other people, right, the the buyers who, hey, I, I worked here for six years and uh, now they get to start building some generational wealth and they're able to put together sort of a purchase agreement that makes sense for someone who may, might not have capital but has a passion in growing the business and taking over the business. And uh, again, <laughs> go back to this uh, creativity world. There, there's so many... There's so many ways to do this. I, Robin, I love this. I have loved this conversation. I'm going to be very aware of your time. Um, I got five questions I ask everybody on this show. Are you are you game for it? I'm up. I'm up on the clock. I'm excited. Great. They're so they're so easy. They're gonna you're gonna love it. Okay. Uh, tell me, first question, what's the last great meal you had? Oh gosh. The last great meal I had was last Thursday night. I had an incredible meal at an independent restaurant in Flagler Beach and it was a, a seafood pot pie with an incredible lobster claw coming out of it and it was served with um, tempura green beans. Ridiculous. Off the awesome. chart. And Love it. great. Um, I, I had a great uh, martini with it, too. Fantastic. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. Uh, so it was uh, delicious in execution and also had a little drama on the plate in the in the presentation, Beautiful. which uh, I yep. always love. Uh, great. Second question. What's the last great hospitality touch you had? Oh, gosh. Ooh, that's a tough question. I should have reviewed these in advance. No, it's better um, this way. Well, I will tell you this. I, uh, my husband and I joke about like the, the drive by when you're in the restaurant and the, someone's coming by and they just quick, quick, oh, I hope everything was okay. I hope everything was okay. But I've actually had a restaurant owner, didn't know who we were. We didn't know who he was, but he'll draw up a chair and sit down and say, tell me about your meal tonight. So I think it was a situation like that where an owner just said, I, what, tell me, give me some input. Tell me how it. your meal was. I love it. And it was personal. You know what I always do? I always have this game I play. Um, I use this when I used to consult and I talk about it on the podcast a lot. I say, get your little, like, uh, those little moleskin notebooks. And I would tell, I'll tell owners, I say, you don't know anybody in your dining room. You don't know your people. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go around your challenge on this Saturday night. You got 200 covers, 300 covers. Every single table, you have to touch the table and you have to have a meaningful conversation to the degree where you come away and you have learned something about that table. It can be, yeah. they like Pinot Noir, their daughter just got into Stanford, they are on uh, going on vacation in two weeks, something. Because what happens, right. you write these all down, say, you know, table 12, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, their daughter just got into Stanford for Blomp Plomp. Well, guess what? Next time they come in, or when, even better, you send them an email a night or two later and say, hey, just want to touch base. You know, so glad you came in. It's really great meeting you. Uh, really, all the best to, to your daughter on the way to Stanford. You guys must be so proud. I'm telling you, nobody does that. No, and when you absolutely. do it, they will go, wow, that guy remembered. Now, you're cheating. You go to the table, you have a conversation, you go in the back, and you write it down in your notebook because you're going to meet you know, 200 people over the course of a night. But you do that enough. It's at table 12, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Daughter just got into Stanford. You do that, and then you send a little email. Hey, I was just thinking about you again. I really, you must be so proud. All the best to your daughter. Or you wait two weeks, because here we are, right? We're recording this the end of July going into August. You wait two weeks, and you just say, hey, your, your daughter must be leaving soon. I'm sure this is a bittersweet time for you. Uh, we'd love to see her once more before you leave, right? Like. You can do it to be generous. You can also be uh, do it in a way of being generous and, and helping be part of their celebration 
in a way that also gets you um, that also gets you more business, which ultimately it's this like the person who's the most human also is the one who's going to succeed. Go all the way back to what you said in the beginning, right? It's about breaking bread. It's a place where people come. They mark big moments, big celebrations. They they feed themselves. You know, they keep themselves alive by by the things that we serve them. It's so easy to just be nice and connect with people. It's so easy. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Third question. If a genie came down, could grant you one wish as it relates to our industry, just one, uh, what would you wish for? Oh, I would wish for everyone in the restaurant industry to understand and know their real value and their contribution they're making to society and and know that we are grateful for that. I love it. I, I could not agree more. I think that's a really great answer to that one. Uh, fourth one. Uh, what would you tell someone who's uh, about to open their very first restaurant? Oh, my goodness. I would, um, well, before they opened, I would tell them to make sure they had worked in the industry. But if they are about to open, I would just make sure they have sufficient capital left to market. Don't open so strapped for capital that you don't have time. You don't have the money to tell people about your business. Love it. I love that one. Okay, last question. Um, I want you to tell me about the future of restaurants. I want you to look five years down the line. Um, and tell me what's coming that you think other people might not see coming. What's going to happen to our industry? So I think the world believes that all the technology that's being introduced is going to just keep stripping the human element out of the restaurant industry. And I actually think that what it's going to do is push us back into um, fewer kind of corporate situations, more of what I call mom and pop independent. People are craving, right? In a high tech world, they want the high touch that comes from still breaking bread and having that, you know, conversations can't just take place online and they need to take place in person. So I think that while the rest of the world is saying we're pushing to technology and all these robots are going to be cooking the food and all these things, I say, no, it's going to boomerang. And we're going to be more about um, small mom and pop environments where people are having meaningful conversations. I love that. I think that's a really great answer to the question. Um, Robin, listen, uh, I've really appreciated uh, having this conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. Do me a favor. Uh, tell people where they can go to learn more about you and everything you're up to. Absolutely. Just check us out online at WeSellRestaurants.com. That's W-E-S-E-L-L, restaurants with an S.com. And all of our contact information is out there. Of course, we're on all the socials, so you can find us there as well. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's been great. Absolutely. I think you're an incredible resource. And I, I think the, the listeners, I'm hoping listeners got a ton of value um, out of this one. Robin, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Chip. Thank you. So once again, I want to thank Robin for taking time out of her day to sit and chat with me. I hope you got a lot out of that episode. All of the links uh, she mentioned are going to be in the show notes. One final reminder, if you are struggling to generate consistent, predictable 20% profit, if you got a restaurant and you want it to be more profitable, then please set up a call with me or someone from my team. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. It's a free 30-minute strategy session. We get to learn more about each other to see if you're a good fit for the program. If you are, we'll talk about next steps. If not, at 
least you'll leave that call with a little bit of actionable advice that you can put into your business. Again, everything I do is about helping restaurants uh, become more profitable. Uh, if this sounds like you, then let me help you. That link is in the show notes. Again, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be here, and I look forward to seeing you next time.